Well, welcome everybody to City Life again this Saturday evening. If I can welcome you one more time, it's a great weekend to be here together as a church. Can we give it up? I know they did it. Can we get up again for Demetria for leading us in worship tonight? It was powerful. You know, all kinds of stuff happening in the news, and when you watch the news, sometimes it just seems like it's a reminder again and again of reasons to be downcast, reasons to worry, reasons to stress. But then we come into moments like this of worship where you're just reminded through the words we sing, the, the verses, those are based on how good God is, why we should worship him, how we can worship him day in, day out, no matter what. Um, I had a buddy from college this week who on Facebook, he, he, he posted a status and he was like, man, scrolling through my feed just isn't so uplifting anymore. He's like, I just want to throw this post out here and comment on this post, something you can celebrate, something good that's happened this week. And it was cool because dozens upon dozens of people were commenting like this week, this good thing happened for my son or daughter, or I had this kind of interaction with this person that went well. So, uh, you know, Psalm 103, it says, may I never forget the good things God's done for me. Come on, we, gotta, we, we need to do that, especially in seasons like this one. So just as a moment of participation, I had a birthday on Sunday, so we celebrated that. But who has some stuff maybe you've celebrated this week, good things that have happened this week, this month? Lindsay. A birthday. Oh, yeah, it was your 25th? 25th anniversary. Let's give it up. 25th anniversary. I'm inspired. Steph and I are working on six. She's not in here. I'm not in trouble. It's <laughs> all right. I know when it is. Anything else? Emily. No GPS. Yes. You guys have been here for what? A month? A month. So getting to know the getting to know the lay of the land. Anybody else? No crying two days in a row. Let's see if she can make it through my sermon without crying. Holy Spirit, she's gonna slay. Anyway, still see another hand? Yeah. Hey. Going to eat good after service? Go to a nice dinner? Yeah? I know, uh, again, my birthday was Sunday, and her, her birthday's in eight days, right? Turning eight years old? Yeah? Nice. In the second row, you can tell her happy birthday later. But how many of you guys know what happened 47 years ago this week? Celebrated the anniversary. I knew it would be the Thomasons. One or the other. Yo, the landing on the moon. The lunar landing happened 47 years ago this week. And uh, I was just reading up about it. Um, I like to pretend I know my history, right? So in 1958, the year that NASA was established, Time Magazine took a look at how, quote unquote, disturbingly hard it would get to get to the moon or how hard it would be to get to the moon. And it's uh, 1961 when President JFK announced that we would walk on the moon within that decade. And um, that's easily one of the most ambitious undertakings of the past century, centuries, however long in history. That was ambitious, that goal. And in the summer of 69, though JFK didn't live to see it, that ambitious dream announced years earlier was achieved. And then Time Magazine would write about it again because that's what they do. And they called the Apollo 11 mission a shining reaffirmation of the optimistic premise that whatever man imagines, he can bring to pass. Just the reflection of the power of ambition and audacious dreams that aim for the moon, shoot for the stars. Or maybe you've heard us talk about it at City Life, God-sized dreams. Dreams that are so big in our lives, we have to put our faith in God if we're ever going to achieve them. Yet in the Bible, we see Jesus say, for instance, that the meek and the lowly will inherit the earth. Not the mighty, but the meek. Not the people at the top of the ladder who have climbed the way to the top, but the ones that are holding the ladder 
for others. So how do these work together? Are they an either-or choice between ambition and between humility? Is it one or the other, or can it be both and? Because we've been in a series called Big Enough for Both. And uh, it's been based on 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, where it says, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen? So that's a basic truth about light, light that we see in this verse, that there's no darkness in it. You know, the amplified version of that verse says that God is light. He's holy. His message is truthful. He is perfect in righteousness. And in him there is no darkness at all, no sin, no wickedness, no imperfection. But another fact about light that we've been looking at in this series is light is complex. And a life that follows Christ, or as John calls it in this passage, living in the light, has its complexities. And we've talked about this, a prism, where you can hold this up. If I could get up there and hold it up to the window, the light would bend through it twice. And each time it bends through this prism, it, the different colors bend at different wavelengths, and it produces a rainbow. And then if you take those colors and you put it down on a color wheel, you get what are called complementary colors, opposite sides of the wheel, different places on the spectrum. But when you take two complementary, I'm going somewhere with this. When you take two complementary colors, and you put them up to full intensity, they create white light. And similarly, God is light, and in him there are often complementary characteristics that together, not separate, show us the fullness of who he is. And the big idea of this series is that we can't put an or where God has put an and. Don't live under the tyranny of or, a false decision or a false choice where God has shown that he's big enough for both. What are some of these false choices or dumb dichotomies? What am I talking about? Well, we started this series talking about grace or truth. In our culture, that's broken. Do we need to dispense grace or do we need to champion truth? And the answer is both, right? Just last week, we were talking about are we set apart or are we sent? Do we focus on discipleship and going deeper or do we focus on reaching people? And we talked about reaching people is deep, <laughs> You know, that, that's part of our call. And set apart, it, it's not speaking as much about geography as it is the, the, the condition of our hearts. We can be set apart and still out in the world reaching people for Christ. And then July 4th weekend, we had the nice little party out on the lawn with the inflatables. We talked about freedom versus restriction. Does religion free us or does it restrict us? Because it's got plenty of commands, plenty of boundaries, but we talked about how it's both. Those boundaries are a blessing. They're life-giving. They both protect us and propel us in our purpose. And that week we looked at the quote from the Declaration of Independence that says, all men are created equal with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And tonight I just want to reflect on that because from that quote comes the idea of the American dream. The idea that freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, and upward social mobility for families, achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers. It's one definition. The American dream fuels ambition, tells us to shoot for the moon, sometimes literally as a nation, but always figuratively as a citizen of America. But that's the Wikipedia definition. In, in the words of pop culture, it means that you can grind through your life and then eventually look back and say, we started from the bottom, now we're here, right? If I can quote a Canadian rapper when I'm talking about the American dream. 
But uh, to bring it back to American icons, Martin Luther King Jr. once said from the Lincoln Memorial about the American dream and its promise of the free pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to a black man it was a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. If the American dream were a ladder, the African Americans was missing some rungs. But what about when the ladder is fully functional and we make it to the top and all our ambitions are realized only to realize ourselves what the author of Ecclesiastes realized, that it's all a chasing after the wind. Or as he says over 30 times in 12 chapters, everything is meaningless. And that observation is meaningful because the author of Ecclesiastes is the king of Israel when that nation was at its peak. He had all the wisdom. He did all the social programs he could want. He acquired all the wealth and pursued every pleasure he could have wanted to. Successful in every ambition, yet quoted as saying everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Again, even when man is able to taste of each pleasure, and taste the fulfillment that comes with it, we find it's lacking. All of the world's pleasures we so often strive for make the object of our ambition, they're meaningless. Or as Martin Luther King would say, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. At least that's what it seems like sometimes. So do we set aside ambition? I mean, after all, Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Jesus also said, again, that the meek and lowly will inherit the earth. So do we ditch ambition and pick up humility? But while Jesus, Jesus said that the meek and humble will inherit the earth, but then he went on to say to those same followers, hey, go, on and, go out and change the earth. You know, the, the meek and the humble will inherit the world, but then in the Great Commission, he tells those same followers, hey, go, go change the world. Is he contradicting himself, or do we need to take a closer look at our definitions and realize that our call as individuals, as the church, it requires both? I want to look at a conversation he had with his followers to jumpstart our conversation, and it's in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the pews, or you can swipe there on your phone. But it's Mark chapter 10 verses 35 through 45. I'll have a little bits and pieces on the screen. But it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him, Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials, flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, the disciples, James and John and the other disciples, 
They were living in a culture under the oppressive rule of the Romans, and they had been hearing Jesus talking about this kingdom that was inbound, like this kingdom is coming. No doubt they were still envisioning at this point an earthly kingdom run according to human norms where Jesus' friends would receive special privileges. Their hope was that the self-serving, oppressive Roman government would be toppled and replaced with their own self-serving government. It's kind of their own version of the American dream. Their ladder, ascending through ambition, would outmaneuver others for position and power. And I've read commentaries this week on this passage that rail against the word ambition by name. One of them went as far as to say ambition is a poison. But when you look at ambition, the definition in the dictionary, it's defined as a strong desire to do or achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. It's not such a bad thing. The strong desire to do or achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. And the thing is, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their ambition. He doesn't chastise them for aspiring to greatness. It's telling how at the end of his comments, he essentially poses the question, hey, you want to be great? And then he tells them how. He doesn't tell them to set aside their ambition or, or lay it down so they can pick up humility. He simply corrects them on what it will take. He repositions their ladder, essentially flips it upside down. Ambition, as Christ defines it, is rising downward. Jesus didn't say let go of ambition and pick up humility instead. He said humility, add that to your ambition. Greatness is found in placing others over yourself. We talked about, we see it in Ecclesiastes, we see it in our culture, that ambition without humility that's fueled by pride, ultimately, even if you achieve all your pursuits, will lead to discontentment. But on the other side of that coin, if we have what we might call humility without ambition. It'll lead to apathy, idleness, sloth. If we let go of ambition, of audacious faith, of God-sized dreams, then the church will operate with low expectations and have little impact. But in our culture, as we look around, again, we look at the news, we see all the division, we see all the, the hate, the very real anger. The church needs to not have apathy, but to step up. As we talked about last week, we're sent. We need to realize, have the ambition that we're sent for such a time as this. We're placed here in this region for such a time as this. I am, you are, here in Suffolk, here in Chesapeake, here in Smithfield, here in Carrollton, Portsmouth, wherever you call home, you're here for such a time as this, as the church. But our call to reconciliation, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, it needs to be soaked in humility. The invitation to reconciliation is not going to be a roar. It's going to be a humble invitation. But just that word humility, it's one of humankind's most attractive traits, and yet it's also seemingly sometimes the most elusive. I think it's because sometimes the, the definition eludes us because we see it used in so many different ways. So just briefly, I want to look at what the Bible says about humility. I want to actually look at what humility isn't because sometimes that's easier than even trying to define what it is. And then I want to look at how that ties into our kingdom ambition and how those don't contradict each other. They actually complement each other and they propel us into our purpose. And the first is this, that humility isn't low self-esteem. This is probably one of the biggest misconceptions. And one of my favorite quotes about humility, you've probably heard it. I think it was C.S. Lewis, but it's been attributed to so many people. It's like nebulous who even said it first. But humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. 
It's not thinking less of yourself or having a low self-esteem. It's simply thinking of yourself less. And I could drop the mic and move on to my next point at that point. But I want to tie that into ambition. And, you know, last week we talked about Daniel, the story of Daniel, in the beginning of Daniel. And it's kind of funny when you, realize, when you read Daniel and you realize that he wrote it. You know, sometimes you read the Bible and, you, and you, you read it and you realize, oh, he's actually writing about this. Because when you read Daniel and he describes himself and his friends, this is how he describes himself and his friends. He says, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And then you're like, pause, he wrote that about himself, huh? Because imagine if you were like it's somebody's dating profile or even like Facebook profile, and you say, yeah, I'm good looking and without defect. You'd be like, this person is full of themselves. They are the epitome of pride. These aren't the words of somebody with low self-esteem. But there's no virtue in self-deprecation or having a low self-image. You know, we're made in God's image. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're qualified to serve under a king, you do that for the glory of God. That's exactly what Daniel did. You know, Romans 12 verse 3 says, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. You know, in a way, humility's closest cousin is honesty. Daniel was honest about his attributes. God isn't asking you to say something about yourself that isn't true. He's asking that we take a good look in the mirror and see ourselves for who we are and ask him to fill the gap with his grace. Ask for his help when we need it. So humility, it's not low self-esteem. Secondly, humility isn't being a doormat. You know, because I think some people think of humility and you think, well, you're just going to get walked all over if you're humble. But you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, you realize humility is pretty active. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You know, I believe God's humility is one of his most overlooked traits. Philippians 2 goes on to outline the, the path of rising downward, this path that Jesus took where he went from the very throne room of heaven, took on flesh, and was obedient and served us to death on the cross. And because of that, because he stepped lower in humility than anybody ever could, he stepped lower in empathy than any of us physically can, he's now glorified as the name above every name. No person has shown more humility. No person has shown more empathy. But you look at the life of Jesus, you read his conversations, you see his interactions. Jesus was anything but a doormat. You know, you think being meek is weak, then read the Gospels again. Read about Jesus and his conversations and his interactions. You'll realize that meekness and humility, it's controlled strength. It's power under control. It isn't passively being walked all over. It's actively serving and putting other people's needs in front of our own. And then thirdly, Last little note, quick note on humility is humility doesn't downplay accomplishments. You know, in the world, how many of you guys have, like, young kids playing sports, soccer, baseball? Do they all get trophies or do just the winners get trophies? You know, I know there's some league, everybody gets a trophy. And here at City Life, we talk about winners and losers, and we're going to have to invade the culture with that. That'll come after Jesus. But, uh, Anyways, I'm not even going to give my opinion on that. On the, in the church, you see the pendulum swing all the way to the other side, where it's, it's like some people can't take a compliment, where you tell somebody, maybe, you know, Demetria, you did amazing. You tell Demetria, you, your, your worship was phenomenal. You tell some people that, they're like, no, 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 no. wasn't me. It was all God. 
And you're like, well, if you didn't want to compliment, mission accomplished, because you made that so awkward, I'm never going to compliment you again. <laughs> but again, you look at Daniel, and he didn't downplay his accomplishments. He wrote a book about it. And God thought that that was so significant that he put it in the Bible for us to read about. He didn't downplay his accomplishments. The broken pagan culture he was a part of needed his confidence, his service, and his accomplishments. Our culture needs ours. The church can't buy into a false humility where we slouch spiritually and we stop pursuing God's dreams for us. Again, both as individuals and the church. What, what we, I think it was A.W. Tozer, we, we read the quote last week, a scared world needs a fearless church. We need to courageously ask, how are we called to change our world, the place God's placed us? Because in our humble honesty, you know, we can't change the whole world ourselves. But godly ambition should remind us that we're called to change our world, the place that God has placed us, the city we live in, the region we're in. And, you know, that should stir up ambition. And as Nate was referencing during the announcements, I, I was a youth pastor for years, and you're dealing with high schoolers who are, you know, juniors and seniors, and like, what am I going to do with my life? What's the career path I'm going to choose? What should I major in? And they're like, is this ambition, this dream, is this like a God dream, or is it just me? And, and I would try to give them some advice that hopefully didn't go in one ear and out the other. But uh, I would just tell them these three points about godly ambition. There's other good ambitions. But if you're asking, is this a, a godly kingdom ambition? There's just three quick points I would hit them with. The first is it'll glorify God. A kingdom ambition will want to glorify God. You know, humility, it isn't low self-esteem. And ambition is rooted in high God esteem. How high you esteem God, how big God is to you. I didn't realize I'm quoting A.W. Tozer two weeks in a row. But uh, a lot of our problems, we have a lot of problems that are circumstances. But there are a number of problems in our lives that are often problems of perception, where our, we view our problems so big and our God is so small. And again, A.W. Tozer, he said, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. But a person with a high view of God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Again, there might be other problems and circumstances that you're going to still walk through, but there are some problems of perception where we just view our problems as too big and our God is too small. You know, ambition to step into the world and make a difference will be rooted in a realization of just how big our God is, regardless of who we are. Talk about John the Baptist, just for a second. You know, in his life, at the end of his life, his followers had left to follow Jesus. He had gone to prison where he's eventually beheaded. Doesn't sound like a success story. Yet, Jesus said this didn't make him a failure. Matter of fact, in Matthew eleven eleven, he says he's the greatest man who's lived. Matthew eleven eleven says of all who have ever lived, no one is greater than John the Baptist. What does the end of your ambition look like? Not that we should aspire to prison and being beheaded, but for, for John the Baptist, I believe his ambition was in John chapter 3, verse 30, where he says, I must decrease, he must increase. Is that what our ambition looks like? What's the end of our ambition? Your glory or God's? That's a good measuring stick. The second is this. Kingdom ambition, it won't just serve God and bring him glory, but kingdom ambition will serve others. Humility, again, it's not a doormat. It's not passively being walked all over. It's actively serving, putting others before yourself. Kingdom ambition would ask, how can I serve as many people as possible? Again, in Mark 10, when we read that chapter, Jesus to his disciples, he's like, hey, you want to be great? You have high ambition? Aim to be the servant of all. You want to be a leader? Become a slave of everyone. 
You know, the problem, again, with the disciples, it wasn't their ambition, but the problem is what they, they sought to dominate, not to serve. If your personal ambitions are for power and prestige and pleasure, it's possible that pride won't get in the way. It'll actually blaze the trail for you. A lot of people fueled by pride have climbed that ladder to achieve that kind of success. But those goals are, are short-lived and short-sighted. It's, again, as MLK would say, a check that is returned due to insufficient funds. You know, and even to quote somebody that, that's alive now, you know, not like an author of Ecclesiastes, Jim Carrey, he said, you might have seen this floating around the Internet, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Sounds straight out of Ecclesiastes. That's like the message version or something? Is he quoting it? But it's why Jesus channels his disciples' ambitions and desires to be great in humble service. Because anybody can be great in that way. Again, to quote Martin Luther King, he said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics, which is good because I don't know that myself. He says, you only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. You might not have all those qualifications, but you can still achieve greatness because you can find greatness through serving. And the third point on just ambition, you speak about not being qualified, is that a kingdom ambition will seem too big. Too big for you, too big for us as a church. God's dreams are often too big for us. If your dream doesn't make you hit your knees and pray, God, I need your help, then God would probably ask you to dream a little bigger. You know, Psalm 124 verse 1, it opens with this line and it says it repeatedly, if it had not been for the Lord, you know, where would we be? And it goes on to talk about victories. And it goes on to talk about winning over the enemy. Again, humility doesn't downplay accomplishments. That psalm doesn't downplay their accomplishments, their victories, and their winning. It realizes we don't do it in our strength. And it's all about God's strength. And we want to celebrate that. We want to glorify God for that. See, God didn't create us to be enough. If you don't feel qualified, guess what? You're in good company. I don't feel qualified every time I step up here. If you don't feel qualified, you're in good company. God didn't create us to be enough. He created you to be a carrier of the one who's more than enough. You know, I was talking to a pastor last night at a gathering in Norfolk, and he had been a pastor for three years. He's about my age. We both got saved when we were 21, so once we saw the commonalities, we talked for a while, and he was just talking about how humbling it was to, to take the church from another pastor in a good transition, a smooth transition, and and really, it was the same word I would describe for planning a church. It, it's humbling. You know, there is ambition to plan a church. Anybody that's on the plant team, and you've been in these meetings since last October, November, you know there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of ambition. There's a lot of, of, of faith-filled prayer. But at the same time, it, it's humbling. You realize real quick, God didn't create us to be enough. You know, a lot of weeks I come in here, I'm like, God, I got my five loaves and my two fishes. And you better multiply this because... We need that. But you know, our mission statement as a church, our vision, what we echo again and again is heaven now, heaven forever. It's based on Psalm 27, 13, where it says, I would have lost hope if I didn't believe I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. That God wants to whet our appetite for heaven in this life. Yes, there's eternal life. That's why we, when we write it out, the first heaven is lowercase, second one's capital, that God wants to have us experience heaven now and heaven forever. That eternal life, the depth not just the length of life, but the depth of life can start now. So our, our vision, 
You might call it a purpose statement. You might call it a mission statement. There's all kinds of names for it. But the idea, the very idea of a mission statement is, is laced with ambition. You know, all, all these companies have purpose statements or mission statements. Again, whatever you want to call it, when they, when they become a company that they write down. If you don't believe me, Pampers, there's a lot of babies in here. Diapers, their mission statement is happy, healthy baby development. That's like their calling, happy, healthy baby development. Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Their mission statement is to create the best possible ice cream in the nicest possible way. Nike's mission statement is to being inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And you know, mission statements, they keep your ambitious pursuits, they keep them focused. Like five guys, what do you think their, their mission statement is? Make good burgers? Right. We are in the business of selling burgers. It's like, did your, your kid write that? Like, we're in the business of selling burgers. Keep it simple, right? It helps us keep our ambitious pursuits in focus. And, and we read this verse at the end of last week where Paul says in Colossians 1.23, there is no other message, just this one. I'm a messenger of this message. What he's talking about is the gospel. He's talking about the good news. You know, if we had to take the Bible and say, all right, what's God's mission statement? What do you think it would be? What's God's mission statement? I think it would come out of Colossians. In Colossians 1.20, it says, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Through Jesus, to reconcile all things, all people to himself. Because then when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he essentially gives it its mission statement. That God reconciled us to Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You know that the enemy... He's got a mission statement. You read John 10.10. His MO is to steal, kill, and destroy. And we've seen a lot of that in the past weeks. Again, just the the sanctity of life just seems lost to humanity. We've been witnessing his mission statement walked out. We need to actively walk out the church's mission to reconcile all men to God. It's so easy in uncomfortable seasons like this one not even just the stuff we're coming out of, but we're going into an election where there's going to be lines drawn in the sand to retreat to like our comfortable corners where people look like us, think like us, believe like us. But we're still sent even in this season. Without contact, like we said last week, there will be no impact. And where it's us versus them in our culture where there's been lines drawn in the sand or where, where people separate and divide themselves, we're called as the church to take that us and them and create a we under the blood of Jesus Christ to reconcile under Christ. But it's so easy. I'm sure you can relate. You watch the news. You keep up with the news. You feel powerless. It seems so broken. And again, you think about life. It's here and it's gone. And these problems are, are seemingly universal. And that powerless can turn to paralysis where you end up doing nothing. But we need to humbly realize that we might not be able to solve the whole problem, but the whole problem can't be solved without us. God placed us here for a reason. We can't do everything, but we can do something. Can't do everything, but we can do something. Humility tells us we can't do everything, but our ambition, our faith should tell us we have to do something. You know, our culture is in a spiritual storm, and to take a, an illustration from meteorology, in 1960, a meteorologist named Edward Lorenz made an accidental discovery while he was trying to develop a computer program that could simulate and forecast weather conditions. 
One day he was in a hurry, and instead of entering .506127, the number he had used in an earlier trial, he rounded to the nearest thousandth, or .506. Lorenz figured that rounding the number to the nearest thousandth would be inconsequential. He left the lab, and when he returned, he found a radical change in the weather conditions. Lorenz estimated that the numerical difference between the original number and the rounded number was the equivalent of a puff of wind created by a butterfly's wing. He concluded that a minor event like the flapping of a butterfly wing could conceivably alter wind currents sufficiently to eventually change weather conditions thousands of miles away. Lorenz then introduced the scientific, to the scientific community to the butterfly effect, which no doubt some of, some of you have heard of. Again, in this season, it's easy to feel power, powerless, feel like an like a insect in, compared to everything that's going on around us like the, the spies that were on the, the border of the promised land. They said they felt like grasshoppers. Matter of fact, if you turn to Isaiah, it says we are like grasshoppers before God. It says in Isaiah 40 that God sits above the circle of the earth. The people seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent before them. We may feel too small. The problems may seem too big. But we got to fix our perception problem because God is even bigger. He reigns over the heavens. And God can use a butterfly to change a weather pattern. How much more can he use us rooted in humble ambition to change the pattern of sin, the pattern of brokenness in our world? God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary means. One conversation, one shared verse, one meeting over a dinner table or a coffee table, one invitation to church. We can't do everything, but we can do something. We all can do something. You know, if I could have the, the worship team come up, it's just going to be Demetria and Emily on the keys. But to just bring it full circle, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on Apollo 11, when they landed on the moon doing the extraordinary, some 600 million people were listening and watching from Earth. And no doubt, they felt like grasshoppers, sitting some 250,000 miles from home amidst the vastness of space, sitting on the moon. But before they walked on the moon, Buzz Aldrin pulled out bread and wine that he'd carefully packaged and stashed, and he partook of communion sitting on the moon after reading this verse. In John 15, 5, it's what he read for all to hear. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And it's the perfect close to tonight because that verse hits on both humility and ambition. Humility in the fact that without God, we can do nothing. We're of little significance eternally. But then there's the ambition. And the source of the ambition is this, that union with God will bear fruit. And I love that he doesn't just say fruit, he says much fruit. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And you know, my ambition in life is not based on my ability but it's based on the fact that Ephesians 3.20 says that God can do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond what I could dream or plan for based on my own ability. When that verse really lays hold of you, how can you not act? If we give God zero, you can multiply that by a million and it's still zero, but you give God a fraction of your strength. Come on, he can do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond. You can't do everything, but you can do something. So let's not slouch spiritually and live this season without the ambition to be used by God. If a butterfly's wing can move weather patterns, come on, God can use us. Things look bad, 
There are a whole lot of people. You spend enough time on social media, people trying to tie what's going on in the world right now with prophecies and election. There are prophecies and revelation. You know, how does this fit in to that framework? And that's a, that's a noble quest. But I think sometimes we can get so absorbed in the obscure that we miss the obvious. You know what the obvious is in Revelation? We win. <laughs> you know what the obvious is in Revelation? That the church that Jesus said nothing will prevail against, it wins. I don't know who said it, kind of like the other quote, but you can never bet too much on a winning horse. And if we know that the church is going to win, we know that the call we have is going to result in victory, how could we not invest in it? I joke all the time, you talk about time travel. If I could go back in time, I'd be betting on events where I know the outcome. <laughs> I would go all in, put every penny down on that because I already know what the outcome is. I'm not going to hold back. If we know the outcome of the church, of, of God in us is victory and life, then how can we not put all our chips on the table? Come on, if we could stand, we're going to go back into worship. But I know when I look at my life, again and again in life, I'm always holding on to some chip. You know, we're all, God, I want to give you everything. I want to surrender all. But then there's times in my life where I look, I'm like, I'm still holding on to this chip. Fear of failure. Pride. Even false humility. Where I'm holding something back. Where if I really realized the victory I'm called to walk in. If I really realized that God is greater in me than anything in the world, they'd all be on the table. So I don't know as we worship just know that the Holy Spirit is going to convict us of steps he's been telling us to take, inviting our neighbor over for dinner or whatever it might be, giving that Starbucks barista a reach card, inviting him to church. Maybe those things where you, you fear rejection. I know there are times where I can easily make an excuse. I'm going from point A to point B. I don't have a lot of time, but God will call us to those moments to step out, to build a bridge when so many people are drawing lines in the sand. But then also, if you're here tonight and you feel like the author of Ecclesiastes, everything's meaningless. I can't find the hope I need. I've had all these ambitions and I keep coming up empty. You know, in Ecclesiastes 3, it says that God has set eternity in our hearts. I think of that as like a record groove that never ends. You know, something might be able to fill that groove for a time, give us fulfillment for a time, but every one of those things ends. God has set eternity in our hearts. The only thing that will fill that void is God himself. We're created for that. And if you've never said, God, I want to give you my life. I want you to fill my life. I want you to be king. I want you to be savior. I want you to be Lord over every detail, every facet of my heart and my life because I know that those boundaries are a blessing. I know that even your commands are to propel me into the purpose you created me for. Again, self-deprecation, there's no, there's no place for that. You're created in God's image. You have value. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. But you'll never walk in the purpose he created you for until you walk with your creator. So tonight, if that's you, we're going to go into this song, but I'm going to be right here. And if you need prayer, then I'm right here. we got other leaders in here. My wife's back there next to her nice little knee cart. But we would love to pray for you. If that's you tonight, you either see there's chips in your life that you need to let go of or, or you just need to give your whole life over to God, then we want to pray for you. We want to equip you to take those steps. But we're going we're gonna to sing the Bridge of Oceans. 
We're going to sing that, you know, last week as a worship team, we were debating how many years it had been out because I think every church has sung this song about 11 million times. And we love it because I believe we love it because the bridge stirs up ambition. Where it says, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Well, let's make that our prayer. Let's not just sing those words. Let's make that our prayer. And I believe God would reveal to us places he wants our feet to wander, where we can do something. Might not be able to do everything, but we can do something. Might not be able to change the world, but we can change our world. We can have an impact. So let's worship together. Let's sing together today.